Welcome back, folks. Left Reckoning. I'm Matt Lick. With me, as always, David Griskin. Hello, David. How are you? Man, I'm doing pretty good. How about yourself? Uh, I'm doing pretty well. We have a, a great show for you. Uh, I, I don't... Well, let's get into it. We have a recorded interview with Chase Woodruff. Mm-hmm. He is a journalist out of Colorado. We're going to be talking about a lot of things, about uh, Joaquin Murrieta, an 1854 dime store novel. Uh, we're going to be talking about response and re- uh, resistance to anti-CRT school board shenanigans in Denver uh, and uh, and some other stuff about, you know, water and uh, aquifers and a little bit of drugs. So got a good little <laughs> capsule of Colorado politics with Chase. And we will also get into uh, Elon Musk has been really uh, 100 miles an hour on his mad scientist kick. You know, <laughs> yeah. the whole reason that a society would create an archetype like a mad scientist isn't like to be entertained by it, in my opinion. It's to be prepared for when someone like Elon Musk emerges. And uh, does and not only like the mad scientist thing, it, you have to bring in like a racist scientist too. Yeah. Um, and I guess scientists are probably doing too much credit. Uh, no, I mean, capitalist mascot. And, we'll and get into it later. Yeah. He's just like, he's just like for somebody who presents himself as like, you know, the entrepreneur of the future, he is as old school as it gets from <laughs> the, like, just like basic labor exploitation, an incredible and horrific amount of racism within those, his company. Um, and then essentially, you know, bribing and trying to push um, local governments and state governments to do his bidding. I mean, he is a throwback uh, rich guy if there ever was one. Yeah. And also uh, I have details on the story of drilling holes into animals' brains and putting microchips there uh, mm. in a way that is being ensued <laughs> for animal cruelty. And Yeah. Uh, disgusting, disgusting guy. Uh, so sorry, Elon Musk fans. We are not going to be, obje- well, we're going to try to be objective about the guy. We're not going to be, um, you know, I guess. We'll read some direct quotes and you can make your own decisions about how you feel. Yeah. About how about that? We'll read some direct quotes we don't necessarily want to read. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> uh, in public. Um, but uh, yeah, before then, we have some positive news mm-hmm. uh, uh, from the uh, Howard Schultz suck my dick department. <laughs> uh what did uh what did starbucks do here david well we got a lot of of starbucks news and you know i I think most people um watching this are aware there has been a historic rise of unionization efforts within the company including successful attempts in buffalo and we'll um go go back to to that place in 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 just a moment but we want to start with the positive here right because you know, there's some technical aspects to how this union was formed and this, the, like the specific strategy that has been successful here, um, that are actually very interesting. I mean, this this attempt is very, very novel and new. Um, it's not typical for, for example, for for an organization to sort of try to do this store by store strategy for a company that is as large as Starbucks. And there's some reasons that that hasn't been attempted in the past, but it's paying off. Um, and we're seeing a huge wave of people who are working at Starbucks saying, you know, enough is enough. It's time to join together with my brothers and sisters um, and, and and form a union. And, and we want to take a moment to celebrate that because it's a very exciting uh, development in this country. Um, so this is the first headline right here. Over 100 Starbucks locations have filed for unionization. Um, on Monday, Starbucks workers, it's February 20th. 
uh, 22nd by uh, Sharon Zhang. Um, on Monday, uh, Starbucks Workers United announced that they had officially surpassed 100 locations mm. filing for union representation, marking a milestone despite the company stepping up its union busting efforts. It's official. We reached the 100 store mark, the union tweeted. 103 stores, to be exact, have filed petitions with the NLRB to join the Starbucks Workers United movement. New filings at three stores in Virginia and one in Wisconsin pushed the count over 100 and across 26 states, so now a majority of states in this country. Uh, two stores have successfully unionized so far, and thousands of workers are in the middle of organizing campaigns at their stores. Now, uh, a company um, and a company with an extremely nasty uh, track record um, with trying to break a you know, previous attempts at unionization within the company um, has, of course, pushed a very, very um, nasty anti-unionization campaign um, and are, are fighting tooth and nail all of these people who are organizing. Um, and, uh, you know, we'll talk about some of their uh, some of the things that they're doing at other locations. But again, Celebrate your victories when you can. Um, this is a really great <laughs> story right here. Um, hell yeah. Uh, shout out of the week to uh, Microsoft Outlook. Uh, Starbucks yeah. tries to slow union elections, but misses legal deadline by eight minutes. Um, as more baristas around the country seek to unionize, Starbucks has used a massive legal team to slow the pace of union elections. But the coffee chain suffered a tough legal setback on Friday, all thanks to some late emails. Workers at several stores in upstate New York recently petitioned for union elections, just like the two stores in Buffalo that successfully unionized last year. But Starbucks, through its lawyers um, from the nasty little firm, Littler Mendelssohn, has asked the NLRB not to move ahead with the votes, arguing the elections for individual stores aren't appropriate. The companies wants all the stores within the region grouped into one big vote. And, you know, just so people understand, um, you know, they they do this to try to increase the the pool of of voters, um, you know, to try to uh, um, make it harder for a union campaign to be successful because union campaigns are hard to win. Um, you know, there's a lot of organizing and a lot of trust that you have to build. And if you can expand the amount of people who are able to vote, whether or not they want to be in a union or not in a union, um, you know, it, it makes it much more difficult, obviously, for you to win that election. That's what they did in Bessemer, Alabama. Um, and, uh, you know, this you know, these people are very, you know, are paid very, very well, uh, you know, to try to use these trying true tactics. Um, but the, the great thing that happens here, um, is despite all of their homework, um, and, you know, they're reading their anti-union playbooks through and through, um, the, uh, the lawyers absolutely failed at one of the most basic parts of, uh, you know, bureaucratic, um, <laughs> meddling here. Um, because they did not send in the documents uh, to the um, to the NLRB in time um, because of what they claim was a failure in Outlook, um, and they they missed their uh, <laughs> they missed the deadline by you know I think about eight minutes, and the NLRB said, "Well, tough luck." Um, you know, you wouldn't allow, uh, you know, the, the, the unions or, or the union organizers to get away with something like this. So we certainly aren't going to let you get yeah. away with something like that. So um, very, very great. And, uh, you know, hopefully that helps the people in the rest of New York State uh, organize themselves into a union. And that would have delayed the uh, the elections, right? Which is it would have delayed the elections. Yeah. It would have made it more difficult for it would have created a higher threshold that they had to reach. I mean, um this is a, a good story, but it is an unfortunate um, 
peek into what's going on all across the country, um, because this is not the only place um, that these firms are, you know, um, working on behalf of Starbucks to try to delay or make these union elections more difficult, right? Um, and, uh, you know, Starbucks has come down really, really hard, which is why it's so important um, for everybody listening to this to continue, um, you know, to follow the story. I mean, at this point, it's starting to get to a, a place where you can find the store, in your community and, uh, you know, find ways to get involved and, and to help them out. Um, because people need all of the help and the financial support that you can give them, uh, because Starbucks really is threatened by this move. Um, you know, some things were floating around Twitter the other day. Starbucks is hiring, um, you know, anti-union propagandists to do marketing stuff for them, uh, you know, to attack unions internally. Um, you know, they really are, um, you know, prepping themselves for fights. So, this is a good time to show your class solidarity and find ways to get involved with your local campaigns. Cause I promise you, um, you know, there are certainly some in your area at this point. Yeah. It's funny. Like the franchisee model is sort of like, we're all kind of different groups until it's, uh, no, let's all centralize this vote into one giant thing. Um, interesting. Uh, yeah. And I, I want to note, um, you know, some of the bad though too, mm-hmm. um, because this is important to show support in Buffalo, um, mm-hmm. where they won their um, election. And remember, like this is one of those things. It's the same thing with like us, like winning power and, and politics, right? You know, winning the 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 union representation is like only the beginning of the fight, right? Because then you have to have win your contract negotiations, right? Like these are like long term fights, and you know, companies like Starbucks are very willing to take their time um, and, uh, you know, wait for people to stop paying attention to start to retaliate. So um, this is from a, a more perfect union, a Starbucks attempting to force out union leaders at Buffalo stores. Uh, multiple leaders of the Starbucks union drive in Buffalo, New York have been warned that they may be fired in the coming weeks as a result of policy shifts planned by Starbucks management after the first successful unionization effort at one of the company's U S stores. Uh, and the story goes on to talk about, um, one of the lead organizers in the um, successful successful Buffalo uh, election, who is now uh, uh, Cassie Flesher, um, who is now essentially being let go by the company because they're saying, oh, well, you're not working enough shifts um, at this location to maintain your employment, right? It's all kind of really sneaky, um, you know, <laughs> um, non-direct uh, reasoning for why they're they're sort of forcing this person out. But come on, it's clear as day um, why, uh, you know, Starbucks is letting letting people go. It's because they think that they if they can sort of strike fear in, uh, you know, the hearts of the other people employed at these facilities, uh, that they can get away with sort of defanging the union, maybe even getting it decertified. Um, and, and again, the reason is that this person is not working enough hours at the facility. Um, but like that's Starbucks whole business model. Yeah. Right. Literally Starbucks is, you know, presents itself as a company that is a great place to have a part-time job, right? Where you don't have a 40 hour weekly responsibility, but you can come and work a couple shifts, which is good for Starbucks too, because it allows them to sort of fill in holes in their scheduling. I mean, it's complete BS. And as you know, um, that the, 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 the story, the, in the more perfect union, you know, goes, goes through. It's like, you know, there was no option for anything here. It was literally like, oh, well, now we're changing our policy about a minimum amount of hours that you need to, uh, you know, be showing up for, uh, which is complete BS. Um, but that's not the, even the most egregious one. 
in Memphis, um, mm-hmm. where there has been a very, very exciting and, 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 and popular attempt in the sense that like a lot of people have been showing up to support folks. Um, organizers have been um, fired and like, you know, Matt, I know you know this too. Um, they've been fired for the most BS stuff, like things that are like technically in the rule book in some, you know, small print somewhere on page 72, um, but rules that nobody follows. Things like, oh, we opened up the door after the store was technically closed to let, uh, um, you know, an Uber Eats worker pick up some, you know, the food yeah. um, or, oh, you went behind the counter after your shift and you weren't wearing your apron. Um, you yes. know, which is not allowed technically, right? Um, again, which everybody does, including management and including owners. Yeah. Um, but now it's being used retroactively to, you know, force out people. It's selective or opportunistic enforcement, basically. And this is again, and like, you know, I, I it's it's just it should be clear as day to people right now that Amazon is engaged in extremely illegal and unethical union busting. Um, and the real shame here is that in this country, we have a very toothless um, system for enforcement of labor law. Um, But I want to share this right quick, uh, because this is, again, from uh, More Perfect Union. This is Memphis, and this is just showing the kind of really, really nasty ways uh, that uh, Starbucks is trying to prevent unionization from happening um, at at their stores across the country. Um, And also is a reminder of how much this company fears community involvement and community engagement in this process here um so we can watch this and let the video speak for itself because they knew you guys were coming today and because we were having our sit-in and we were speaking to media today they have closed our store um they're saying it's because yes word got back to the store manager and district manager about that. So today our store was closed. They said it was because of a positive COVID case, but in history has it, we've never closed the store immediately and all day for COVID cases. Usually the store manager and district manager tried to find a way to keep that store open for the day, but today we were completely closed. It's completely anti-union. Obviously was a plot and a ploy to stop everything we were trying to do today. All the more reason not to. Yes, exactly. It should speak to the real fear that this company has of, of union and worker power. Um, you know, that, you know, I mean, this is a company that's so greedy, they're willing to potentially infect the public um, and certainly infect their own um, employees, um, you know, by keeping, you know, their store open uh, when people have, you know, have, have had, uh, you know, positive tests for COVID. Um, you know, they're willing to keep it open for that. Um, but they're so worried about some people standing outside of a store with signs and showing that there's community support for the workers at the at that that location, and that they would actually forego all the profits that they'll make in that day, um, you know, to try to stifle any kind of labor organizing. Yeah, I do want to share this. This is their GoFundMe <clears throat> support Starbucks, a fired Starbucks union leaders in Memphis. They're at fifty nine k. Uh, of, uh, of they need to get 70. So they need a few more donations. I'm going to donate after we get off here. Um, but, uh, I mean, I'm glad they got that much, uh, so far and, you know, bless these people for doing this. Solidarity with the organizers and, and the Starbucks workers in Memphis, solidarity to the folks in San Antonio, um, and all across the country. I mean, this is a fight that, 
um, you know, we'll be covering a lot on, on this program because it's, it's really important. It's exciting. And, um, you know, they're up against one of the most powerful brands and, and corporations in this country. Um, and, uh, you know, continuing to take that fight and continuing to win is how we build even stronger and larger movements in the future. Uh, as to the structural reasons why this approach wouldn't have been tried in the past, uh, do, what's that theory there? And then is there anybody thinking like why this might be like working a little bit better than theory may have suggested now? I mean, I, th- I think, you know, this would be a conversation that'd be better had with somebody who's like really engaged in like mm-hmm. labor organizing. But, you know, the general sense of it from what I understand um, is that um, one, you know, th- the Starbucks union is a sort of non-traditional union formation, right? Um, so it's, it's, it's sort of separated from like the more traditional unions that, that we're familiar with who organize in these spaces. Um, but also when you're trying to organize across the board, um, that means that you have one fight to, to win. Uh, versus these where it can sort of be, you know, so, sort of dissipated where it's like, you know, you could potentially only have, you know, one one union, um, you know, in, in Buffalo, right? And like all the other ones fail and like that. Well, that's, you know, limited in its success. Right. And also it creates a situation. This is the one thing that I think is really important about discipline here. A situation where you have actually a bunch of competing unions, Um. At, at, at Starbucks, right? And that creates problems too, right? Like if you have like a, a completely different union organizing in, you know, in Ithaca and a completely different union organizing in Buffalo, um, you know, that can create a lot of tension as well. And, you know, sort of create a situation where, you know, Starbucks is sort of pitting uh, unions against each other as well. But I mean, you know, this is one of those things that was like, that's the conventional wisdom. Yeah. And, uh, you know, this has shown that like there is uh, a, this this kind of like more, it's like, this is like guerrilla warfare kind of union organizing, essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, that might not seem always like the, you know, the most reasonable approach to take. But as you see from time to time again, like guerrilla warfare ended up being very successful <laughs> in revolutionary movements all around the globe, including in this country. Um, and, um uh, yeah, I mean, uh, yeah. you know, it might it might just be time for a different, you know, and, and novel strategies. So time to see what works. sticks, basically. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I would love to hear somebody be able to break that down a little bit better mm-hmm. um, than me. But that's my understanding of it. Interesting. Well, folks, we will get back to you with the Elon Musk uh, portion after this segment here. But uh, we get tired, had a good long uh, discussion with Chase here, and I'll be back uh, with half hour. Well, can we pitch? Our, yeah. We should pitch our, our Sunday show mm-hmm. to folks too. Okay, so we have a uh, the St. Louis Commune, uh, a book that looks very uh, well. It, it doesn't just look. Uh, I'm about halfway through it now. Uh, by Mark Kruger, the St. Louis Commune. Uh, communism in the heartland. It's a very good, you know, there's a few chapters going over stuff that I think uh, like the first international stuff like that, that I think folks um, might be, I, I appreciated the refresher um, uh, people. It might mm-hmm. be um, old news to some, but as far as like how the uh, St. Louis, uh, like the general strike, uh, 1877. And I mean, a lot of interesting articles. I'm trying to pull up the, uh, Oh, here I got it. I'll just put up my screen. Um, but yeah, Saint Lu- the uh, St. Louis Commune of 1877. We got Mark Kruger on. We're going to have him. You're not going to want to miss that. Um, Patreon.com yeah. slash Left Reckoning. Uh, it's. Uh, I mean, it's, I wish there was a way for me to have like an RSS feed of books that are like absolute 
definite uh, let's get on left reckoning because this is uh yeah the second this I is certainly one this. yeah exactly i mean this is like this is like an incredible story of you know and an, an American movement really doing some radical organizing and taking on the state directly. So, and you hear, you hear like the like the the specter, uh, a specter's haunting Europe, right? Specter of communism, the Communist mm-hmm. Manifesto. Not just Europe uh, mm-hmm. has come to find that the German immigrants in the fucking plains had some familiarity with that stuff and those uh, organizations. They uh, and I and yeah, I'm I'm super excited about this sort of stuff. Um, and, uh, and, you know, it's interesting because we talked about this and like how a certain um, Marx's writings didn't get out uh, until like, you know, this century mm-hmm. uh, or I mean the 1960s, for instance. Um, but I think that like there's that lesson, which is important to remember about how recent this stuff is in terms of like the battlefield of ideas. But also like the, the communists were making a huge splash. Um, uh, and I, I again, like I didn't realize how much of a splash you're making domestically here in America uh, even in that time period, you know, at following the Civil War, and uh, and mm-hmm. you know the uh, influence of the Paris Commune and that sort of stuff. So we're going to get into all of that uh, with uh, with Mark uh, Kruger. It's super cool. I mean, you know, nearby me in Comfort, Texas, there was a a pretty radical attempt to to build um, um, you know a social society out there, and uh, this is pre Civil War, so it's like radical German abolitionist socialists. Um, you know, we're trying to build a, a radical and different kind of community and uh, um, the tragic ending uh, when Texas seceded for the union, they refused um, to pledge their allegiance to the new Confederate government and were slaughtered at the spot. Um, but it is just like this kind of radical history, actually, of, of these, these, you know, <laughs> these German dreamers and socialists in this country, um, particularly in, you know, the parts of, of the U.S. too, where, um, you know, that hadn't really been settled in the same way that like New York or, um, you know, a lot of the East coast was, I don't know. It's cool. So it's crazy. Like the, the, the strike breaks out and the mayor is on the side of the strike, um, initially because all the fucking voters, all the fucking voters are like German uh, radicals and stuff like that. I I love it. Uh, yeah. So, um, so that will be fun. On Friday, I'm also going to be doing a stream. I didn't do one on Tuesday. Um, we doing a Q and a stream and also Matt might be getting on the Twitch. I yes tonight uh, after the show uh, I will be uh, I'll be doing a left on the left reckoning feed I'll be doing a Twitch stream be playing Perfect. I don't so know there's no post game tonight but yeah don't know if what I'll be listening to uh, if anything maybe I'll just be chatting but I will be playing Ultimate General Civil War I can tell you that much so <laughs> yeah all right y'all well enjoy this interview it's a hell of a lot of fun see you in a half hour we talk about Elon Musk. Welcome back, Left Reckoners. I'm Matt Lick. With me, as always, David Griscom. Hello, David. Hey, man. And joining us now is Chase Woodruff. Chase is an environment and economic policy reporter at Colorado Newsline. He also writes uh, the Lit Out West substack about literature and history of the American West, which uh, is uh, in part of... Actually, both of those uh, roles are going to come into uh, question here. Um, Chase, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Glad to be here. And I should just say it's uh, at DC Woodruff uh, if you want to follow him on Twitter. Uh, you have this piece, and I wanted to share it right now. It's because uh, it, it's really it really speaks to me, uh, frankly. Like this is it, right in line with what we do at uh, Left Reckoning, which is like a deeper history of and like especially regional histories of things that are kind of forgotten. Um, but it's also in line with my other project, Literary Hangover, because there's a dime novel that it comes at play here. So I want to uh, just 
put this up here for folks so they can uh, go read it. It's a nice, it's a long piece, really well written. This is, you know, we've had uh, Aaron Thorpe on a few weeks ago, and it's nice to have uh, these folks who I, I don't know if you were an English major, uh, Chase, but like I was. Folks who, you were okay. Could you tell from this piece? <laughs> a little bit, yeah. And as an English major myself, I think there's a little bit of a signs there. Uh, um, but just extremely well written. Myth and memory in Joaquin Murrieta, how a forgotten Cherokee writer's 1854 dime novel wove its way into the Chicano movement, the modern Western, and Batman. Uh, so first, let's start with who was John Rollins Ridge? the uh, writer of this novel and what is sort of his, I guess, family history. You mentioned he's a Cherokee writer. I believe his Cherokee name was something like yellow. I should look this up. The yellow dog or yellow bird. Yellow bird. Uh, yeah. Right. Yeah. And who, who was he? Yeah. So he was a uh, mixed race Cherokee, Cherokee father, white mother, um, born in the 1820s, you know, when the Cherokee nation was still living on Cherokee nation land in, in, mm. uh, in Western Georgia and, and kind of that area around there. You know, this was a period when Cherokees, um, you know, especially were really pursuing this policy of, of assimilation and trying to adapt to the ways of, you know, European American civilization. And, and they wrote their own constitution that was very modeled on the American constitution and sort of um, a- attempted to accept this bargain that was kind of laid out to them in theory, which is, you know, if you you know, quote unquote, uh, civilize your people and kind of adapt to modern, you know, agricultural methods and things like this, that um, we won't just steamroll over your territory and dispossess Mm -hmm. you of all your lands. And, um, you know, as we know, that turned out to be, uh, you know, the, the, the Cherokees tried their best and uh, we still kind of didn't, the U S didn't hold up their end of the bargain. And eventually, you know, dispossessed Cherokees of, of all their land. Obviously this became, you know, Indian removal policy and the trail of tears. And that was, you know, the first uh, John Rowland Ridge, his first 10 years of his life was just this kind of brutal campaign of ethnic cleansing. And he, uh, his family ended up in Arkansas. His, he was kind of, um, he was born into this, you know, uh, a pretty, you know, almost an aristocratic family of Cherokee leaders. Um, his family owned slaves. Uh, and they were some of the folks who kind of, in a very controversial move, uh, signed a treaty that sold a bunch of Cherokee lands that was against Cherokee law that, and um, to enforce that law, which the punishment was execution. Um, some some other Cherokees murdered John Rowland Ridge's father, his grandfather, and yeah, I think he was 10 or 12 years old at that point. So that was kind of um, certainly researching his piece and going back and, and um, learning about some of that early history. It was interesting to me, you know, approaching some of the themes and content that is so much a part of kind of the Wild West and Western American literature you know, it, this was stuff that was going on in Georgia in the 1820s. And there was a, a gold rush there, which was really um, a big part of why uh, Cherokees, Cherokee lands were, were seized so aggressively back then. So it was, you know, it was kind of there from the beginning, these these sort of themes of land grabs and dispossession and, and ethnic cleansing and this westward expansion. Yeah, and you mentioned in your piece there's so much that's a microcosm of the West in general. And just that 
the the signing of that treaty that that the way that the, that's sort of done is a microcosm for how it's generally done, which is that you select a, a certain part of a tribe to sign the treaty that other parts of the tribe aren't super happy about. And then you don't even really fundamentally honor that treaty either uh, <laughs> often. Right. Um, so it's like, it's like, it, it's, it's awful on both sides, but um, yeah. So, so that is the context for this guy who writes this, this novel. Now uh, the life in what is, Oh shoot. I had the, had it written down the full title, but of uh, I think it's life and adventures of Joaquin Marietta. That's it. Yeah. Uh, so he writes the life and adventures of uh, Joaquin Marietta. Who is Joaquin Marietta? What's that sort of, what is, or what is Joaquin Marietta? (laughs) Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's certainly a a matter of, of some debate and, you know, there may um, never be a a perfectly satisfying answer for whether this was a a real historical figure or not. Um, So John Rowland Ridge, you know, as we talked about, he ends up in Arkansas with his family, grows up there, eventually makes his way uh, to California in, I don't think he was technically a 49er. I think he got there in 1850. And so he was, he was out in, you know, the Sacramento Valley during the gold rush. Uh, He, you know, I think he did go out there to, to mine for gold, like, like everybody else. He didn't, he didn't strike it rich, but turned into, uh, turned to newspaper writing and editing. And um, in 1854, he released this novel that was kind of a collection of this uh, tale of this outlaw, this bandit, Joaquin Marietta, that had kind of spread as legend throughout the the California gold fields. Um, like I said, you know, it, there's, there's debate. It, it appears that there was at least somebody named Joaquin Marietta. There was a, an early act of like the California legislature that formed a ranger, uh, force to go hunt down these bandits that named five Joaquins. Um, but really, you know, to understand the context this, that this was taking place in, uh, Mexican-American War it, uh, ended with the, the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo in 1848. That is how the U.S. you know conquered for Mexico uh, half of its territory and, and California and much of the American Southwest. Um, and there were you know there were thousands of uh, you know they're, they're referred to as Californios, the the Mexican California residents, uh, in addition to you know tens of thousands of of indigenous peoples still living in California and. The, the U.S. seized the territory and started engaging in a pretty, you know, brutal campaign to force the Californios out of California. And, and you know, that was sort of, that's that's the, the context that this Joaquin Marietta legend uh, kind of forms in. And the story, as John Rowland Ridge told it, is that Joaquin Marietta was a, a, a Californio. He was a, a born in Mexico and, and moved to, to California when it was Mexican territory to mine in the gold fields. It was seized by the U.S. and um, was victimized as part of you know this this campaign of terror to force uh, people of Mexican descent out of the newly acquired California territory. You know, is is as Ridge tells it, his family is is murdered. He's you know at one point he's almost lynched um, and embarks on this campaign of revenge and sort of vigilante justice. He's, you know, in some versions of the tale described as uh, sort of this Robin hood figure and others, he's more of a, you know, straightforward villain. Um, But that's, that's kind of where this legend came out of. 
And in Ridge's tale, and he's pretty sympathetic. Uh, I haven't read this uh, novel, but uh, he's pretty sympathetic with Marietta. Is that right? Yeah, I think so. I mean, you know, one of the reasons I, I started really, really digging into this and, and reading the book and, and some of the, the stuff surrounding it is, you know, I it's it's um it's not often you see this cited as like kind of the first Western novel or the first mm. tale of the wild West. I think there's a pretty good case to be made that it is um, a lot of the kind of Western tropes, the, the outlaw with the heart of gold uh, and, and various others kind of uh, our, first, first, you first see them here. And obviously, you know, this is a time when the wild West is becoming a thing and with, with the gold rush and, and, and carrying on in the 1850s. So, you know, I think as, as you were, you're mentioning, like, I, I think it is understandable that it may not be cited in an American context as the first wild West tale, because it is kind of a, a fairly sympathetic, um, you know, story. It, it's not, it, it is Ridge wrote it as a kind of like moralizing tale um, to, you know, I think he even he gets pretty didactic at points and saying like this is what happens when when you have race hatred and you oppress people based on their race they you know that, that you'll you'll have this kind of vigilante justice but you know yeah he he is he is Ridge's original version of the of the tale was definitely very sympathetic to uh, Marietta in in terms of uh, you know justifying sort of some of his actions. Yeah, I mean that's that's the sense I got. It's sort of like a Robin Hood, uh, but with a lot more of sort of American uh, race hatred uh, at play. Yeah, I mean uh, it, it is it is you know this is a novel. The novel is is not you know it's not the best writing you'll ever find, but uh, it is yeah it's certainly significant in the fact that uh, it was a, a fairly uh, popular early Western story where the you know, protagonist slash antihero, whatever you want to call it, is is kind of talking about as he does in the book, uh, slaughtering Americans wholesale and, and all that. Kind of stuff. <laughs> yeah, there's certain elements like that part, the part that he's uh, mixed race, that make it a little bit uh, easier to understand why he wasn't canonized. Um, uh, but th- he, this does his work is coming up. I'm seeing it more and more. I feel like uh, you know, there's a, more and more people are talking about not to go Trump all of a sudden, but. Uh, um, I, that kind of takes us to uh, a, a broad question we want to throw at you uh, to sort of represent Colorado for us for a moment. We you know we set this sort of context of uh, you know dispossession of native folks, uh, gold rushes. Um, what's uh, what do folks need to think about? Like uh, if we want to look into our time cap- or our capsule for Colorado, uh, what do people need to think be thinking about? Yeah, I mean, in, in terms of, um, you know, kind of as we we're talking about this in this historical context, um, certainly Colorado, its identity has, you know, it, it, its history is wrapped up in being a frontier state. Um, mm-hmm. um, you know, I know you guys were, were talking, I guess you're kind of doing some of these uh, state by state looks. And, and I listened to um, you guys talking about South Carolina and obviously the, the uh, so much of South Carolina is wrapped up in the early history of slavery and the civil war, you know, Colorado w- uh, wasn't a state until 1876 and really wasn't settled until the early 1860s. And so it kind of takes place in a historical context immediately following that. And you have Western expansion, um, you know, the, uh, anytime I'm kind of talking about this, I, I recommend folks check out uh, Greg Grandin's book, uh, end of the myth 
It's mm. uh, really fantastic. Just um, study throughout American history about how, how the frontier operated in in American society and sort of um, in the Civil War era was kind of referred to as um, the, the people called it the safety valve. You kind of dissipate sectarian tensions between the North mm-hmm. and South by saying, hey, here's, here's all this free land to the West that everybody it's free real estate <laughs> exactly <laughs> uh and obviously you know that 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 worked up to, up until a point and you had bleeding kansas but anyway f- you know following the civil war and you really have um colorado and sort of the interior mountain west being settled and that's where you have you know the the indian wars of the 1870s and 1880s really getting into you know pretty brutal systematic dispossession of natives you know we were talking about treaties um in the late 1860s, uh, the U.S. government changed its policy and just said, we're not going to do treaties anymore because we're not going to recognize sovereign- sovereignty of, of Native mm-hmm. nations as such. We're just going to deal with them as kind of, you know, internally displaced peoples almost. And, you know, that was that was Colorado. And and um, so it's a it's really important to, to understand understand that as part of the history. Um, and then you have a pretty. Um, you know, uh, Colorado has always been based on commodities and mining and uh, recently oil and gas. Um, that's, that's kind of uh, a big part of our history here. And, you know, uh, I don't know if we want to go all the way to the present day or, or what. You yeah. Well, we to... were touching no, I mean... before we got on about the, like uh, the thing that p- out of staters uh, think about Colorado is uh, North Dakota. And like, I know people's parents are retiring there. Um, so like, let's talk about, uh, is it, is it one of the fastest growing uh, states? I'm pretty sure. Uh, what is the, and what's going on internally with the Colorado's economy there? Yeah. I mean, uh, yeah, just flipping forward all the way to like the, the eighties and nineties, you know, back then I think, you know, as, as we were talking about before, I'm, I'm a transplant. I've been out here 10 years. Uh, there are lots of, lots of folks like me out here who have been moving here since really since the nineties, uh, especially over the last 10 years. Um, and that influx of, of kind of transplants who are, you know, tend to be, um, upper middle class white have jobs in, you know, the information or tech sectors, um, that's driven, a lot of change in the state politically, you know, it has pretty quickly turned uh, Colorado into a fairly solidly blue state. I mean, it wasn't that long ago when it was, you could, you could really say it was, it was uh, pretty solidly purple, but um, I don't think there's a lot of folks who would, would agree with that anymore. Some of, some of the Democrats kind of, uh, you know, like to say still that it's a purple state in order to justify kind of, running more uh, moderate candidates who they right. feel like they could win. But um, yeah. And, and that's, that's been a, a big part of, of the story here. Uh, how and, about pot? Oh, sorry. No, I mean, I just want to say, and, 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 and with that too, like, um, you know, from my understanding and correct me if I'm wrong, like, um, you know, there's been a, a real threat to, um, you know, particularly water in the state um, with people using it, you know, some people using it, you know, just to sort of like, you know, vacation property and things like that, more and more pollution and, and like pretty extreme factory farming too. Like, um, you know, whenever we talk about water on this show, like Colorado is a place that seems to be at the top of the list for states that are very, very, 
um, like they're really reckoning with what I think a lot of people are sort of, you know, assuming the future is going to be like where fights over mm. water and water rights are going to become more and more important politically. Yeah, for sure. It's, you know, it, it is, as you said, it's like mostly, um, you know, we have a, we have a long way to fall, not to say that we couldn't, uh, but we have a long way to fall until, you know, water supplies um, get to a point where like, you're talking about shutting off like municipal water supplies. I mean, you, you know, 80, 80 or 90% of the water is used by the agriculture industry. Um, and certainly if, if things keep trending the way they are, I mean, the, the Colorado river compact, the Colorado river is basically the river that, uh, and all of its tributaries that supply water to the entire American Southwest and some crazy number of tens of millions of people. Um, you know, that, that compact was signed in, in the third, I mean, we're really getting into water rights. Water rights are, are <laughs> that compact was, was signed at a, at a time when like the, the uh, levels, even, even in the historical context, it was signed in the twenties when the water levels were like much higher than they are typically. So mm. even before you factor in uh, climate change and like sort of the continuing Western drought uh, that the Colorado river compact was, uh, you know, uh, was, was not going to produce some, some real, you know, hard choices for, for a lot of these States out here. And we're entering a period where that's stuff, stuff like that's going to have to be renegotiated. Yeah. That's, that's scary. Is Colorado river the one that goes through Phoenix too? Um, uh, it doesn't get down to Phoenix, but it certainly, uh, a lot of it is, you know, transported down there. Right. I mean, yeah, reading about aquifers and stuff like that is not uh, the most existentially like cheerful uh, sort of conversation. <laughs> um, <laughs> no. Um, what uh, you have a piece here in uh, Colorado Newsline Chase that I thought was very interesting uh, from uh, earlier this February. Uh, I'll put it up here, and it's uh, teachers, students protest new Douglas County School Board. Uh, alleged school board's alleged plot to oust superintendent. Newly elected conservative majority has moved to reverse mask wearing equity policies. Uh, walk us through what. Uh, so, the re- most recent election, I imagine they were running on uh, the sort of things like what's uh, what's going on here with this story. Yeah, so this is Douglas County. It's uh, South Denver suburbs. I think it's like the third largest school district uh, in the state. It was, uh, yeah, narrowly elected a new conservative majority in November. And uh, they, you know, pretty quickly got to work and uh, they rescinded the mask mandate as, as you saw in that headline there. And there was an equity policy that was passed last year by the district. And, you know, it it's, it's like a lot of these things that are being debated at school districts all over the country. You know, it was kind of just a fairly, um, you know, in one sense, uncontroversial sort of anti-bullying policy laying out some of these, you know, we, we, we ran a story. I didn't write the story, but um, my colleague reported, um, talked to students there who, you know, in this very p- pretty conservative South Denver suburb, um, students of color who had faced like, horrible bullying harassment there. And so this equity policy was designed to, uh, to um, help ameliorate some of that. And uh, the conservative new conservative majority, it's, 
if the, when they're on Fox News, they say they're getting rid of the equity equity policy. When they're kind of talking to other folks here, they kind of say, no, we're, we just want to change it a little bit. Um, it's been kind of funny because they say that. And then you have like Chris Rufo on Twitter sharing stories, like <laughs> thanking them for gutting the equity policy. Um, so, you know, like I said, it, these, these are, these things are happening, uh, in school districts all over the place, all over Colorado, all over the country. Now they are. And one thing that was interesting about this though, is there is a response to it. Uh, let us uh, give us, what, what was the straw that broke the camel's back and how did people respond? Yeah. So, um, kind of in, pretty weird and dramatic fashion the sort of uh, this is a seven member board the four new members are conservatives the three previous are are kind of more progressive and the three members who are in the minority kind of uh started blowing the whistle and and holding these public meetings saying we're hearing that the the four new members are kind of secretly working to uh fire the superintendent and you know there were a bunch of different allegations made i mean you you it, it seemed to be a violation of kind of the district's personnel policies. There was like possible some, possibly some like open meetings. Like you can't have four members of a board decide behind closed doors to do something like this. They say they were kind of like playing phone tag and, and uh, I, I think it's like a walking quorum or a rolling quorum where none, no more than two of them were meeting at any time. So anyway, they, they uh, decided ultimately to fire the superintendent. It was this very, uh, long and weird uh, meeting where they wanted to go into executive session uh, to fire the superintendent. And the superintendent said, no, I'd prefer you to do this in per- like out in public if, if you want to fire me. And they clearly were not prepared for that. They kind mm. of uh, couldn't really articulate why they wanted to get rid of them other than they just wanted to go in a different direction. And um, yeah, ultimately, you know, this guy who'd been with the district for 25 years and who, you know, prior to a few months ago, I don't think you would have had anybody complaining too much about, uh, just got, got the boot and, uh, you know, who now they get to hire their, their own superintendent sort of implement their vision for, for this district. Right. So like the, they just saw that there was this equity policy and mask policy and they said, we just need to get rid of the super. That was the first, I, I mean, not to read into it, but it seems like that they're just looking for a reason and whoever was the superintendent at that time would have been uh, targeted. Yeah, I think so. And like, you know, um, I, I wrote that story. I went down, you know, as you were, as you were saying that there was, there was a reaction. There was a, in reaction to this, you know, kind of beloved 25 year veteran of the district being ousted, um, there was a walkout. The t- teachers did a sick out. Students have done some walkouts. Um, there were, you know, in this kind of sleepy South Denver suburb, there was this big protest with a thousand people. And, you know, you talk to teachers and not to say that masks, the mask mandates and the equity policy aren't important, but there's a certain degree when you talk to teachers about this, like they understand, you know, what this, what this, new conservative school board majority wants in addition to get rid get getting rid of policies like that is you know to open more charter schools and to you know really adjust kind of those fundamental structural issues that you know are always always up in the air for for um public education and so yeah like i i could imagine like certain teachers that maybe like they are like 
have got the same sort of Fox News concerns about equity policies. But when you start like blowing through procedure to like get rid of administrators, like I think everyone's going to be like, oh, this is a little bit of a concern. Yeah, for sure. I mean, there, there were definitely, t- you know, I, I went down there kind of, uh, you know, I'd followed it a little bit and and I was, there were several teachers I talked to. I was like, what do you make about the equity policy and the changes? And they're like, yeah, yeah, whatever. We're, we're concerned about our pay and, and, you know, what, what's going to happen to the, the future of the district and, and, and stuff like that. They, they don't have a, it's not a school district that recognizes the um, teachers union and in terms of collective bargaining rights. Mm. So they're in that, at that disadvantage too. Yeah. The teacher sick outs thing was really interesting to me uh, as uh, both that they had, they have the organization capacity to stand up to those folks. I think they should be lauded for that. Uh, and also the reaction against it to try to discipline them back into, uh, the, I, I guess, in, into compliance. Uh, tell people about that a little bit. Yeah. So um, I, I believe, it, you know, when this sick out happened, there were kind of immediate calls from some like conservative commentators here to release the names of all the teachers who called out sick. Um, this is actually something that has it, they have attempted to do this before in a different school district here. And there was like a court case that, uh, you know, mm. uh, that ruled on whether um, the names of teachers who called out sick on a given day were like public record or whether that was like privileged personnel information. They ruled that it was public record. So um, it's a tactic that conservatives have used before here. The they did submit a public records request um, at one point to release all these names and, and it looked like it was going to happen. And then apparently the person who uh, submitted the request withdrew it. Uh, and, you know, I, I definitely talked to a ton of teachers down there who are, are pretty freaked out when they hear stuff like this, especially given how, you know, charged these issues have become for a lot of folks. We had an elementary school here, here in, in Denver public schools where, a guy screaming about critical race theory, like lied his way onto campus and was like roaming the halls, oh, uh, accosting staff and parents. So, yeah. And I like, it's weird. Cause it's like, it's like, it's both a vehicle for people who are clearly like, you know, unwell to go into a school and yell at kids. And it also is, I think it, the main reason that say the Republican party is interested in this is because it's a Trojan horse for to attack schools. Like we had um, mm-hmm. my buddy, Chris Leal is running for office in Dallas. And, and the way that the, like people in rural Texas uh, is what he's finding, like love their schools. They want their schools to be protected and invested in. And then you get this other sort of issue in there. And all of a sudden you're not talking about that sort of stuff again. What's the state of, uh, of Colorado, like public education? Cause uh, I, I didn't want to follow up the uh, water uh, rights conversation with my, my question about pot. Um, but my understanding, <laughs> my understanding was uh, like, uh, you know, weed was supposed to lead to a whole bunch of new revenue and uh, finance things like education, stuff like that. Like, uh, I, I know I didn't prepare you for this question, but where are we at with that sort of stuff? Yeah. So, I mean, that's a pretty common question. I mean, I, I think the, I mean, the, the specific, the answer to that specific question is just like the, the pot doesn't raise enough money. Mm. Uh, like people think, you know, it does raise a lot of money, but it, it's kind of a different scale when you're talking about schools. Mm. Um, the other thing it is like, 
earmarked in the law that like it goes to capital costs for schools. So it like funds like the construction of new buildings mm. um, and like not necessarily operational costs. Uh, but yeah, I think mo- mostly the, the, the answer there is just that, which uh, not to say that folks, you know, this is wrapped up when you, when you ask about the state of public education here, like we're a pretty uh, hardcore, like ed reform, uh, charter school pro charter Democrat state. I mean, it, it, mm-hmm. it has been a big thing out here. Um, our current governor, Jared Polis, uh, made, uh, he's, he's uh, worth several hundred million dollars, uh, made a bunch of money in the dot com boom and has been a force in state politics for the last 20 years. And he got his start running for the state ed board and being a big proponent of the, of the charter movement here. That's, you know, as it does everywhere has, has a lot of, a lot of funding behind it. And, you know, there is still an attempt. There was just a, a ballot measure last year to hike pot taxes again a little bit and use that to fund kind of uh, after school tutoring slash voucher, very ed reformy stuff. Um, and it failed. So people are kind of sick of being told that pot is the answer <laughs> to all of our problems here. <laughs> yeah, I mean, maybe it's just a good thing to not criminalize that stuff. Uh, after all, that <laughs> yeah, it's probably fair. <laughs> maybe it doesn't yeah. need to solve the problem of public schools in America. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, well, Chase, this has been a great conversation. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. I can't recommend your piece uh, in the Substack uh, "Lit Out West" enough. Uh, uh, you know, this is it really speaks to me. That you know, I'm all about the mythology that's being lost for folks. So. Um, uh, thanks so much at DC Woodruff. Give him a follow. Uh, Chase, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, guys. Welcome back, everybody. Man, that was a lot of fun talking with Chase. He's yeah, awesome. I, I can't believe you haven't been to Denver. Honestly, we gotta get to. I had a very <laughs> the thing fun is like time. I've gotten really close. Like I've gotten really close. I just never have. Yeah, made the leap. I uh, I had a very fun time uh, going to a Rockies game on a uh, superfluity of edibles. Uh, and it was a very fun, uh, I mean, that is, uh, on a nice day. I mean, baseball stadiums in general are great places to be, but, uh, mm-hmm. watching a Rockies game at mile high is very fun. Uh, yeah. Our left record gonna, tour is going to be great when we, uh, I can't, I really can't wait for that, man. Uh, specifically like anything near mountains is always special territory yeah. for me. Um, well, Lord. How do you even introduce this one? This is this is just really a really shocking story. And it's not shocking because, you know, people might have thought that Elon Musk um, was creating a work environment that was particularly nice and safe for people. Um, but I will say, like, I could never imagine anything as egregious um, as the story that we're about to break down for y'all. Um, you know, this is pretty serious. It's, this is as, as serious as it gets. So Tesla, um, their facility in California, there has been a class action lawsuit against the company um, on behalf of thousands, thousands of black workers um, at their facility in California, which they are now moving you know, most of their operations here to Texas. Um, and the, 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 the case against them is about discrimination. And this stuff is really extreme. Um, so let me just pull this up for y'all uh, right quick. 
uh, to share because Alex Press and uh, has done some really great work covering this story. Um, workers have made shocking allegations of racism at one of Elon Musk's California factories. California has filed a civil rights lawsuit against Musk's Tesla based on shocking evidence that the company's Fremont plant is operating as a systematically racist, segregated facility where discrimination is the norm. Now, it's very rare that workers are going to sit around and lie um, when it comes to these things, because especially when you're dealing with a company like Starbucks or Amazon or Tesla, that's tremendous amounts of resources. Um, and also when these companies typically have in their contracts clauses that sort of, uh, force, um, mediation instead of lawsuits. So like there's a legal hurdle to even bring these, uh, you know, to before the courts, um, for most of these folks. Right. So you should definitely be believing workers when they take, make all the effort, um, you know, <laughs> to bring something like this, this forward. Um, but you know, sometimes when you hear like, oh, well, there's discrimination or there's bias, it's like, Even you know, you can definitely racism. see, you could definitely see, yes, like you could definitely see that like something bad was going on, but it's like, oh, well, maybe the company can argue this down. This stuff is egregious. Yeah, I mean, this yeah. isn't, this isn't just like picking resumes from white sounding names over time, yes, right? Yeah. That is pretty much uh, endemic to like uh, capitalism in the modern world. This is like a, like a developed culture of the most rancid type of racism. And, you know, let's just start here that before we even get into this, this lawsuit, you know, Tesla had to settle with just one black employee, right? Uh, elevator operator um, at their Tesla facility, a lawsuit for $137 million. Now, like, I just want you to imagine for a second, what kind of racist abuse somebody had to go through for, you know, the course to decide that they should be paid $137 million. So this is an individual, an elevator operator, right? Like what are they having to go through on a regular basis? Um, and, and the nice thing about, when we go through the nice thing about settlements is when they take that money, they sign a non-disclosure agreement. So we'll mm-hmm. never know. Well, a good amount of this stuff is like the, you know, the, the, the case is fairly public and like it's, it's, it's just extreme. Yeah. Um, the, this, the culture that they're creating here. And it's, 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 let me just take y'all through, through the facts here and then we can talk about it more broadly. Um, I, I, I just say like my jaw is still like, I'm still in shock, honestly. Cause when I saw the headlines, I had a feeling that it was going to be bad, but I didn't think it could be this bad. So in this lawsuit on behalf of thousands of black workers, it came out that Tesla, um, the Tesla car company was segregating black workers. We're going to read some of the language from this lawsuit, and it's really extremely offensive, but I think it's important for us to know exactly what was going on here. So in this lawsuit that was filed on behalf of thousands of black workers, um, it, it turns out that the Tesla car company, according to the the lawsuit, was segregating black workers into areas that they called Porch monkey stations, the dark side, the slave ship, and the plantation. I mean, just the most disgusting and despicable kind of language. It's it's, it's truly shocking. And that's not even the, the beginning of it. Management regularly was using the N-word to people, not once 
regularly. One worker has been called the N-word by their, by their superiors at the, at the work, not in life and not morally, um, over 60 times. Now, you know, this isn't one of those things where like, once it gets to that level, think about the moment when you start to have to think that you need to start counting these up, right? I mean, this is just extreme abuse, right? Throughout, as is probably not surprising to people now, um, throughout the bathrooms, there's graffiti swastikas and KKK symbols, right? Terrible enough on its own, um, but it doesn't stop there. There was graffiti like this on tables in common areas and even carved into the machinery that is used to build those Tesla cars, right? The discrimination is... (laughs) is as is typical is not just about dehumanizing and insulting people. There is also alleged in this case um, that black workers were required to do the most demanding and difficult and dangerous physical labor. Not that surprising given the areas of the, the facility that they were being forced into. You know, the company, as I said earlier, has forced arbitration in their contracts, and they do that to force accountability. The people who ended up, you know, signing into this, this, this lawsuit had gone to the HR department multiple times, and nothing significant happened. And I, I, I think it's really important to, to, to note that not only is this a grave threat um, and uh, you know to you know to maybe future employees of this company as it's expanding all across uh, the country um, but it is also not a coincidence in my opinion that three days after this lawsuit was filed, Tesla relocated to Texas, most likely out of hope that the the kind of state mandates and the state enforcement of this kind of despicable racist behavior wouldn't be as strict maybe in the future in Texas. Bad news for Tesla though is you can't run from federal law. And this kind this level of discrimination reaches that threshold. Um I mean there we got a lot more to talk about regarding this, but do you have anything that you want to well, say in there's just- the this detail here from the slate piece. Um, yeah, you mentioned regulators. I'll say that black workers were subject to slurs and racist graffiti at the plant that the company was slow to erase and that they were the most difficult jobs and denied equal promotion and pay opportunities. In a 2017 email that Musk sent to employees that seemed to concern a previous class action lawsuit uh, related to similar issues at the Fremont plant, he wrote that anyone uttering an, quote, unintentional slur end quote, should apologize. What is that? Right? Oh, that's a, I mean, what is that just like flop out of your mouth? Like, I, I mean, I can think of what that would be is like somebody with Tourette syndrome who is unfortunately like, yeah, has to say pretend, like yeah. that's what that, that's not what this is about. This is about like, and, and when you say a phrase like unintentional slur, you're sending a message, you're sending yes. a message as if like, and let me just continue the quote because the, the message is explicit. Right. So he wrote that anyone uttering, quote, an unintentional slur should apologize and that the victim should, quote, be thick-skinned enough and accept oh. the apology. So what message I mean, this- is that sending these folks, right? Like it's – first of all, be thick-skinned is a weird thing to say. 
and uh, like an unintentional slur like that is you're not you're in fucking fun far like like looney tunes like uh, the animaniacs mm-hmm. like that that you're not you're not taking this seriously at all mm-hmm. and uh, i mean again like i don't know i i almost hate to like to think you know dollars and cents on this but as a company as an institution um you know, why would you even want to accept something like this that could expose you um, to these kind of lawsuits? The answer is, is that they don't think that they are subject to the same kind of laws, rules, and norms as the rest of society. And that's a bad thing mm-hmm. because the norms that this company is trying to push from like, from just like, you know, this is absolutely horrific. And then you look at the labor practices, um, at Tesla factories. I mean, uh, you know, compare that to other comparable automobile manufacturers. Um, you know, time and time again, we've covered a lot on this show. Um, you know, these factories tend to be some of the most unsafe. Um, and, and more dangerous places to work compared to a Toyota or compared to a Ford, right? And those aren't companies that are really sweet, right. um, you know, and soft and looking out for their people, right? You know, it's also notable too that Tesla is, you know, the only major automobile, um, you know, producer in this country that is not unionized. Um, and they are ex- extremely anti-union as, as we all know. Yeah. Well, I mean, Christ, I can see why. Um, and, I mean, I want to look at some of this language because what you were just saying about the thick skin stuff, which boy, that's sending me. I mean, I, I think like this thing, like that thing about Musk is like, you know, he's obviously is, is an extremely uh, wealthy person who uses his, his wealth and power to like abuse and, and, um, you know, harass people as we're seeing here, um, or just random people like that, you know, poor gentleman who was trying to save those children in Southeast Asia. Right. And he was mad because he didn't want to use Musk's like submarine idea. They started calling this guy a pedophile, right? Like this is just somebody who uses his platform to just harass and take out his own like personal psychosis on other people. And a platform. Um, I'm always just say real quick, like a platform one by not any, like what's the Elon Musk innovation really? It was mm-hmm. like his billions were made on being in the right, like, you know, the PayPal <laughs> orbit, like knowing venture capitalists. Anyway, continue. Mm-hmm. No, no, no. I mean, it, um, it's, yeah, we'll, we'll get to this innovation right here because this is from Tesla. This is their statement, um, uh, right here. And I'm not going to read the whole thing cause it's nonsense, but you can find it. Tesla mm-hmm. blog, DF, you know, you see it right there. Um, let me get it right here. Tesla is the last remaining automobile manufacturer in California. Well, here we go. Um, so this is a kind of threat, right? This is saying like, yes. yeah, we're punishing you for enforcing uh, laws against we will <laughs> segregating our, black workers yeah. and not and saying that you shouldn't call people the N word. We'll take I our mean, plantation Jesus, and slave ship somewhere else, folks. Yeah, and, and they're bringing it here, which is a nightmare for many people. Um, the Fremont factory has ma- majority minority workforce. Oh, great! You're hiring, um, you're hiring minorities, and you're abusing them. Like, what is the pat on the back they're expecting there? Um, and provides the best paying jobs in the automotive industry to over thirty thousand Californians. No company has done more for sustainability or the creation of clean energy jobs than Tesla. Yet at a time when manufacturing jobs are leaving California, the DFEH has decided to sue Tesla instead of constructively working with us, sweeping things under the table. This is both unfair and counterproductive, especially because the allegations focus on events from years ago. Oh, 
<laughs> statute of limitations on uh, segregating black employees and using, I don't want to say those uh, terms they were used again. Um, you know, just some of the most despicable stuff ever. But I want to note one thing, um, because this is something that Tesla does. And we're seeing from a lot of these kind of companies that paint themselves in a progressive veneer is saying, no company has done more for sustainability or the creation of clean energy jobs than Tesla. Give me a fucking break. I mean, you see, like, what is the insinuation there, right? You use a, a battery instead of a gas engine in your vehicle, and that means that you should be able to dehumanize people. Yeah. You use a battery instead of a gas engine in your car that costs $50,000 that um, is – only continuing the crisis of like the personal automobile, right? Which is not a solution to climate change. I'm sorry. We need pu- mass public transportation, not more and more private, exactly, yep. uh, you know, transportation, but that's a whole other thing, right? But trying to use it, even if it were true, right? Trying to use that as like a, a halo to say, well, you can't be mad at us because we're trying to do something good. And yeah, we might just be racists um, and torture people along the way. Um, but it's all for the common good. I mean, this is some real sicko stuff. Yeah, we have a sort of culture of slurs, but they're poor and they don't have anywhere better to go that will pay them so much. So, I mean, do you want to work with us or do you just want to be, you know, negative Nancys? It's uh, and it's a big problem. We're yeah. seeing it. We're seeing it in wind and and solar in particular right now. Um, you know, two industries, which again, you know, it's good. We want to promote renewable energies, but you know, lack of unionization and really shit wages for people and horrible, horrible abuse. And when they get challenged on it, they go to that same playbook. Well, we're trying to prevent climate catastrophe. So sorry, you know, we're paying people subpar wages. Sorry that the, the working conditions are extremely dangerous. Um, you know, like this is this kind of really, really nasty rhetoric that some of these companies use because they think they can get away from with it. Yeah. Um, because some people say like, well, you gotta, you know, you can't make an omelet against you unless you crack a few eggs, right? Bullshit um, logic and a bullshit kind of ideology there. Yeah. And again, um, we're going to go through, I want to talk about the animal thing and then we'll come back to Texas in a second, but I just cannot um, express enough how dangerous it is um, that they're, that Tesla's doing what they're doing right now, because it's very clear they are, they're in California, they were getting to a place where California was starting to challenge them on the working conditions, on the racist working environment, um, and on, you know, their kind of refusal and unwillingness to pay taxes to sort of support the social infrastructure of the society that they're living in, that they shipped over here to Texas, where you have just a disgusting group of oligarchs who run our government here. We don't give a shit about anybody, right? We're willing to put this place up for sale to the highest bidder, right? It should really worry people, specifically people living here um, about, you know, Tesla building another big factory here, Tesla relocating their headquarters here um, because they're bringing that they're not only bringing that stuff here they're bringing it here because they think that it can thrive they're bringing it here because they think that it won't be threatened um, by our systems here and uh, we cannot accept that as a people friends yeah yeah you mentioned so the day after that lawsuit was filed this one comes out uh this is from consequence.net it's a it's a Description of other reporting. Uh, Extreme suffering. 15 of 23 monkeys with Elon Musk's Neuralink brain chips reportedly died. And the other eight also had severe damage. So 
This is just from Ren Graves. Out of the 23 monkeys implanted with Elon Musk's Neuralink brain chips at the University of California, Davis, I'll repeat that again, the University of California, Davis, uh, between 2017 and 2020, at least 15 reportedly died. Neuralink was founded in 2016 with the goal of helping people recover from traumatic brain and spinal cord injuries, curing depression and other mental health disorders, and connecting humans to the internet for everything from music streaming to near telepathic communication. Oh, Pie in the sky stuff. Why do you hate science? If you're if you're skeptical about where this is going, the company has often touted its successes, such as its de- as a demonstration on a pig in 2020 and a 2021 video of a macaque playing pong with its mind. Uh, project has attracted a great deal of in- interest uh, from celebrities like Grimes and Little Uzi Vert. And you know, people mm. suffering from the actual <laughs> issues that it purports to want to solve. But skip a little bit ahead uh, to this uh, these findings here. Pretty much every single monkey that had implants put in their head suffered from pretty debilitating health effects. So the PCRM's research advocacy director, Jeremy Beckham, they were frankly maiming and killing the animals. Neuralink Jesus chimps were Christ. implanted by drilling holes into the monkey's skulls. One primate developed a bloody skin infection, had to be euthanized. Another was discovered missing fingers and toes, possibly from self-mutilation mutilation or some other spec- unspecified trauma, and had to be put down. A third began uncontrollably vomiting after surgery, and days later appeared to collapse from exhaustion and fatigue. An autopsy revealed that animals suffered from a brain hemorrhage. Uh, and so there's been response for uh, these organizations. Um, and I will read that just in the interest of full, um, uh, you know, just to air out what their response is. But you find out it's not very satisfying uh, because it's really like, we're technically following rules, although that's debatable as the response to that is. Um, and if you want, and you're getting in the way of science if you don't allow us to. So uh, I just want to say this. In their response to the allegations, Neuralink said the use of research animals is nothing new to the field of novel medical devices and treatments, uh, and that a company, they are absolutely committed to working with animals in the most humane and ethical way profitable. Mm. Sorry. Let me say it again. The most humane and ethical way profitable. I'll try it again. The most humane and ethical way possible. There, I got it the third time. Um, <laughs> uh, yep. Right? And so while detailing their research process, Neuralink says the process, blah, blah, blah. I don't read this. I want to get to this response. Uh, Neuralink's recent blog post, this is from the PCRM um, uh, in charge of this, uh, this um, suit here. Uh, Neuralink's recent blog post defending its use of 23 monkeys for surgical brain implant experiments doesn't change the horrific treatment that the public records reveal. Monkeys were used by Neuralink at UC Davis uh, did have portions of their skulls removed and devices screwed to their skulls. Neuralink did use a substance. By the way, Elon Musk uh, wants to have uh, uh, testing on U.S. Sub, uh, human subjects. He said 2021, and now he says it's going to be 2022. 2022 is this year. Um, I'll continue. Um, uh, Neuralink did use a substance called, quote, bioglue, which was not approved for use in these experiments and has been widely known to be toxic to nerve tissue since at least 2001. Bioglue came into contact with the surface of at least two monkeys' brains, causing damage and hemorrhaging. One monkey suffered for days after the damage. Neuralink claimed that its animal abu- that it's, that the animals never forced. I, I'm not going to read this entire, um, thing, but mm-hmm. suffice to say, say like it's a bunch it's the same sort of bullshit right like yeah like the patterns are clear here i mean every kind of stop or 
um, question mark, you know, ethically that they faced, they said, Oh, we're just going to go, we're just going to yeah. plow through it essentially. Um, and Lord in heaven, I mean, imagine, um, you know, the, the animal testing laws in this country are not perfect. Um, you know, certainly, um, but Lord, I mean, imagine if, uh, you know, this is them sort of like clawing at the edge of like acceptability for most people. Yes. Imagine if, in particularly like legally, imagine if there were less protections for people. Um, I, I hate to, to, to think about it. I mean, this just goes back to one of these things ab- about Musk. I said at the beginning of the show that, you know, for all the people who try to present this person as someone who, uh, is always oh, a forward thinker. He's a futurist. He's a new kind of capitalist. He's uh, you know, bringing us into the next level. I mean, Jesus Christ, Mass Effect, like uh, you know, put him into their like video game wars. You know, basically implying that he was the one who brought humans into space, right? Um, you know, just, just like really, really um, in- incredible and delusional stuff. But that was the uh, you know, that was the PR game um, for most of the 2010s with him. Um, but the fact is is this guy is just an old kind of gilded age capitalist from the racism in his factories to the abuse of animals and nature as much as, as he can get it on. Um, this is not somebody who is forward thinking in as much as he is somebody who sees that there are some kind of developments and directions things are going into. And he's willing to put himself and his companies in a position where they will go further in breaking and testing the law than other companies, right? You know, you see that Matt and I did a whole thing a while ago about the um, autopilot system that he has. And one of the things that, that's notable is this thought that his company was the first one to develop that technology. His company was the first one to say that we are willing to put it out on the roads when it is not ready to be on the roads, despite the fact that that might kill people as yeah. it has, Right. You know, Google, for example, was also working on autopilot systems. And they said, you know, Google, again, not a nice company, but it was a company that they said, we don't want to put something out there that could potentially hurt people and also hurt our brands, you know, reliability. Right. Whatever logic made that decision. The point is that they were saying, like, you know, the risks here are too high. Tesla and SpaceX, you know, these other corporations, they're willing to push far past um, what other groups of people um, are, are willing to, to, you know, are willing to go. And it's to our detriment. Um, and, you know, we're, we, I want to say in the, the animal thing for just a second, but we'll talk about Brown, Brownsville in, in another moment where it's like, the, the thing is like, this is a, this is not us just like, if it was just like maybe one of the companies, you could maybe say, well, you know, this is sort of the excess of like that industry. But if you notice from project to project, you're getting the same stories. Um, you know, it should give you pause. Yeah. Yeah. I want to read also one final paragraph for this uh, because I think UC Davis's role needs to be, uh, I think, more he, like Elon has a certain degree of. Um, uh, you know, uh, insulation from this sort of heat for some reason. Mm. I mean, maybe I'll catch up with him. I hope so. But yeah, like, so here's this from this, um, 
from Marina Pohl of the Physicians Committee for Responsible Medicine uh, that's uh, suing over this Neuralink stuff. In addition, Neuralink's claim that UC Davis was in compliance with federal animal welfare standards is demonstrably false. In 2018, while Neuralink was funding primate experiments at the university, seven infant primates at UC Davis died due to poisoning caused by the negligent negligence of university employees the same year uc davis paid a five thousand dollar fine to the u.s department of agriculture due to its pattern of violating the animal the federal animal welfare act i mean like we have to this mm-hmm. is like this is a a clear goal for like doing these segments about musk is that when he comes to a place like uc davis and i don't know how you know ethical they are <laughs> outside of doing shit for you know musk projects but or like a municipality people are skeptical uh, to the point of wary mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. and that's because that's like he can't these partnerships have got to get blown up because i mean it's fucking it, it, this is somebody and this is the problem is like who gets to, uh, why does he get to decide this shit is because he was in the right rooms with your know, venture capital people mm-hmm. a couple decades ago and now he gets to be, sit at the helm of multiple pivotal technologies and basically uh, where he gets his ideas from is like you said what is google too responsible to do <laughs> let yeah. me do that you know and like we'll, we'll, we'll pivot to this uh brownsville thing in just one second but like like this is the point because like <laughs> I know I don't want to fix it on too much, but I know eventually this like will get to a certain audience. It's like, oh my god, you just don't you care? Don't you? You just hate them, and 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 you just you know you're saying you're focusing on all the bad, and you're not focusing on the good, and the fact that he's trying to put put forward these new technologies. No, what I'm saying is that I do think that it is great to start to focus on to think about ways that we can build you know renewable and and reliable and safer. Um, for the environment and for other pedestrians, by the way, modes of transportation for people. I do think, you know, that within like the limits of like ethics of and respect for other beings and, and humans, um, that it is fine to investigate, you know, the kind of capabilities that we can reach with technology. I do, um, though I think that we should find ways to budget, um, you know, to make sure that we're taking care of poverty and feeding people first. Um, I do want to be a part of, uh, you know, of a human species that is able to venture far off into the stars, right? Like these are not unique desires of this guy. The problem is, is that this guy, because of his hoarding of, of massive amounts of resources, um, that he only releases with the, um, you know, with essentially the stipulation that he be in control of everything. Um, you know, and, and you see again, when it goes to Tesla, like ridiculous design decisions that, you know, are coming from him that make no sense on an engineering <laughs> level, right? Because he wants, oh, well, I played a video game when I was a boy and I wanted to like look this way, right? Um, you know, the point is like, it's not that we don't want to explore those things. And in fact, other organizations are exploring those things and they would be helped out a hell of a lot um, by the vast amount of resources that this person has hoarded. The point is, is that we don't want to see somebody, an individual like this, being able to use outsized power and influence because of the money that they've accumulated, um, you know, that, that essentially hampers um, our ability to reach a lot of these goals and two, hinders um you know, the, uh, the rollout of these things because they put out things that are unsafe and dangerous for people and for animals, right? Like, I just like, I don't want to, I don't want to like 
put all of the <laughs> the hope for you know a futuristic society or a better society in the hands of somebody who's an extreme narcissist with a history of if not you know actively at least tacitly allowing kind of racist exploit exploitative um you know systems to exist in his companies and a really extreme top down um, you know, authoritarian system within the the shop floor and within the the organizations that he's created, right? I don't think that's a good mode to get us to the goals that we want to reach, and that's why we oppose it. Um, yeah, and I've had this argument uh, with folks on MR a little bit. Like, I don't even like. It, there might be some grain of truth to the idea that he's moved society towards electric cars. But that's not a statement that I'm just going to let pass by and just like, you know, co-sign. I think there's a lot of problems with that. One, like we already mentioned, with just the problems with the personal automobile. Um, but also like uh, the what it what the problem with why we haven't moved to electric cars is a problem of capitalism. <laughs> right. Well, but that, that go ahead. No, sorry, I mean I don't mean to cut you off, but like even within that logic, right? Th- like he gets a lot of credit for certain things, but like the actual productive capacity, for example, of Tesla is extremely limited, right? Right. The point was that the other, you know, like, yeah, automobile manufacturing in this country was very, very prejudiced against uh, electric vehicles for a long time, right? And there's history there. Um, but you could see in the 2000s that, okay, well, now there's a trend and, and people were talking about it regularly in public, right? They're like, oh, well, we need to go back to, you know, pursuing and investigating because you know the electric automobiles like some they were developing in the 60s and 70s but gas was cheaper and nobody was worried about global warming so they went with that right capitalism yeah you're right um but then later when they realized okay well there's limits to this and and we need to move again this is not that gmc and ford and toyota and all these companies are really sweet and lovely um but they were saying okay well how can we produce vehicles that are, are affordable and that we can um you know produce on a mass scale and their timeline was a little bit longer uh, than Tesla's because people forget how few Tesla vehicles there actually are on the road compared um, to even just the capacity of what Ford produces in a month um, mm-hmm. versus what Tesla has produced in its entire existence as a company. And as you've seen, um, you know, the major automobile manufacturers are all now producing mass amounts of uh, you know, electric vehicles, uh, which is a good thing, I would say, generally. Um yeah. But like the point is, is that like they're about to be left in the dust because like it was never viable from the first thing. And like the big thing with Musk that you will learn if you like pay attention to his history, he promises a lot and delivers very, very little. Right. Um, and what he ended up creating was a luxury car brand for a, a certain group of people. Um, and look, it's great. You know, I'm, I'm sure, you know, some people who might be listening to this might even like, like their, their vehicle. And I think that's fine. Um, you know, no shade to you. Um, I don't know if you're like, listening to left reckoning in a Tesla. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I, I will say the, the promise of what he's saying that he's doing. And when he's saying like, Oh, it's okay that we call black people the N word and we quarter them off and segregate them in our, um, you know, in our facilities is because we're building a sustainable future. Right. That's bullshit. When you look at the actual effect and the amount of like, you know, what, what is actually being produced again, it would be, it would be a bad deal. Even if they were like replacing the entire fleet of American automobiles with electric vehicles, obviously, but like, it, like it's nowhere near even close to what, like, look at what Ford's going to produce in the next year. Um, when it comes to electric vehicles that are going to be on the road versus what Tesla has done in this period of time. And like, you realize that like, there's been so much fluff there, but I don't know. I don't want to focus too much on that, but like, these are the technical reasons, um, you know, why we focus on, on, on this person. 
um, because it's extremely unhelpful to let somebody own people's ideas of progress and then cynically weaponize those to abuse and harass people, um, our democracy when he comes at elected governments, we're going to get to that in just a second. Um, and, and animals, right? Like you can't allow somebody to do that, especially if they're going to say, well, you know, critique me if you will, but I'm, uh, you know, I'm saving, I'm saving the planet. Absolutely not. That is not what, what has been happening and what will happen. Man. I just, what more do you need to say that the company's response to having segregated areas for black folks called, the slave ship was that was a long time ago. Like, <laughs> oh, nice. And we're talking seems, like like two years. I mean, yeah. Like, oh, okay. I mean, it better been in the fucking sixteen forty. Or that you should have a thick, or that you should have a thick skin. You know what I mean? Let's get let's get to this next bit, Matt. Um, yeah. So this is this is a little bit of a preview um, for next week. Uh, but let me share this story because it is really shocking. And, uh, you know, as we've talked about now, what we talk about Tesla, um, we talked about Neuralink, um, and this is about SpaceX. We covered on the show um, how I've been arguing that Musk is essentially trying to buy up these towns, um, towns that have for historical reasons of, of racism um, and, and, and class war have been extremely underfunded and under, underdeveloped um, in, in South Texas. Um, you know, are desperately in need of, of funding and, and infrastructure and, and money. And, and he's basically come in there into desperate communities and not just through like the promise, for example, of like, oh, we're going to build a facility here, maybe hire some people, you know, donating some money to a, a school here and there, donating, you know, to certain kind of products that are needed in the city. And for somebody who's super, super rich, who should be funding projects like that all across the country through taxes in ways that we decide, not allowing somebody to sort of dictate you know, to us, what we're going to do, um, um, you know, it's, it's extremely, extremely, um, dangerous and cynical. So let's just get to the story, um, real quick. This is in the Texas observer, uh, written up by Gus Bova here. Brownsville cops arrest activists for anti-space X graffiti. Mayor posts her info on Facebook. It's a very, uh, you know, um, fact of the matter title there, but like, so you can see here on the, on the r- right side of your screen, um, Here's the graffiti in question. Gentrified, I mean, stop SpaceX. I mean, very, very mild. Let's, I mean, let me get to the, the story so people can understand why this yeah. is so wild. Um, I think it's a great, it's a great message. I 100% support it. Um, great but like, addition. let's see, yeah. let's see how this, yeah, it's a phenomenal addition. Looks a lot better than that fucking, that is the most gentrified mural, by the way. Ever. Yeah, like, that is just that, like that. Like comes in the box, you know. <laughs> gentrification billboard right there. <laughs> so anyway, I'm, I'm, um, so Becca Hindosa, and I apologize if I'm mispronouncing uh, your name. We'll be interviewing her hopefully next week to talk more in depth about this. Um, but effectively, you know, so for people who aren't familiar, SpaceX has, um, you know, been built up in the Brownsville area now, and they have been, you know, sort of buying influence with local politicians and local authorities, not in w- and, and not using this money in ways that are, um, you know, helping out the community in general, um, but trying to curry favor with certain people. So, um, Hinyosa, um, allegedly, um, you know, graffitied this this uh, gentrified stop SpaceX here. And let me just go through the story. Sorry. Um, Hinyosa was in her pajamas Wednesday morning when she heard a knock on the door, probably just FedEx. She thought 
though the knock did seem a bit loud. When she peeked through her peephole, she saw a swarm of men. Who is it? She inquired. It was Brownsville police officers. She soon realized were there to initiate what would become a traumatic 24 hours for her that would end in her border city's mayor posting her mugshot and employment status on social media, all for the alleged crime of a little protest graffiti, right? Um, and Yosa, who's a local environmental activist with Sierra Club and another Gulf as possible, says she cracked the door open and they just pushed themselves into my apartment, grabbed me and handcuffed me. She pleaded for the chance to change clothes. She was wearing a thin shirt, pants, no bra, but the officers refused, even threatening to charge her with resisting arrest. Um, four officers total, she believes. She was barefoot as they led her out to the car to take her to the police station downtown. The charges that precipitated this, a class B misdemeanor for allegedly spray painting the words gentrified and stop space X below a new mural on the side of a city owned historic theater downtown. I mean, a city owned. So let's talk about free speech a little bit, shall we? Yeah. Like, like tell it, Matt. I mean, for fuck's sake, it's not even like you can't even run the private property depends what I obviously wouldn't give a shit about, but this is a city doing fucking advertising for this goddamn freak, yeah. uh, which is, again, exactly why we do all this stuff about Musk, because this shouldn't be happening. It's it's appalling that this sort of you know um, tycoon gets to advertise his shitty fucking rockets on uh, you know city landmarks. And I would much rather have a people's fucking message about that on there yes. than that shit. Absolutely. And let's get back to democracy, though, because this is the, the other bit that's really frightening. So you see, like, like, let's use the words that are appropriate here, right? Like the police, right? The armed guards of the state, right? Like the, 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 the domestic army of, of our government going to somebody's house, pulling them out of their home, not even allowing them, you know, just basic kind of decency, let alone like they shouldn't have arrested her in the first place, right? But let alone like refusing to allow them to put on, you know, shoes and a shirt other than, you know, her, her pajamas because she was, they knocked on her house early in the morning. Again, yep. for a class B misdemeanor, I mean, just nothing like the smallest, like it's, it's intimidation, right? And why is that? It's because the people in power are bought and, and are, are completely bought out by people like Musk, which is why, um, you know, just to make a point, most socialists don't need to hear again, but it's very, it's worthwhile making as much as possible. Rich people are a threat to democracy um, yes. because they're able to buy outsized influence with our supposedly democratically elected governments, right? But let's just get here. Um, we're talking about this in depth next week. So I, I don't want to, um, I want to save a, a good bit for next week, but I just want people to understand what happened with the government here. Around the same time, Hinyosa was released after 24 hours. Um, you know, by the way, you know, she was, she was being abused this whole time, was not being given the kind of basic kind of treatment that you would hope would exist. Um, in any case, let alone somebody being put away for, a, again, a class B mis misdemeanor. Around the same time, though, um, Hinyosa was released. Brownsville mayor, Trey Mendez, a major booster of both SpaceX and Musk made a public post on his official Facebook page. He included Hinyosa's full name, her mugshot, and a picture of the graffiti, noting that city cameras had captured the graffiti act. He added, Ms. Hinyosa has been quoted in several anti-SpaceX articles and lists herself as a Gulf Coast campaign representative for the Sierra Club on LinkedIn. Mugshots on, of arrests in Brownsville are easy to obtain as the police department maintains a blog spot. Um, I mean... 
site. I mean, that is intimidation. That is, you know, a threat against our ability to express our political views, right? And again, in service of what? In service of an extremely wealthy person to maintain his pet project that is extremely devastating. And again, we'll talk about this more in depth next week, but like extremely devastating to the local environment and extremely devastating to the local community. How many people were really consulted about whether or not they wanted some jackass to be flying up rockets over their head, over their communities, interrupting their daily life? Um, you know, uh, you know, so that he can pursue his own vanity, given his track record, as we've talked about with his vehicles and his other products too, of skirting and avoiding any kind of basic oversight or safety regulations, right? Like it is a hundred percent the kind of thing that you would want to see in a healthy and thriving democracy to see people's ability to be able to make their voice heard on something like this. And instead you get the state cracking down on an activist. Um, you get the mayor of the city caping and being a complete cuck for somebody like Musk. I mean, it's embarrassing, you know, and if only it was just embarrassing instead of an actual threat to our ability to live in a free and open society. I mean, this is, yep. this should be the thing that is getting people worked up right now, by the way, if you're talking about free speech um, in this country. Um, talk about the fact that a billionaire is basically able to buy and curry favor with elected officials so that they're using the police to stifle and threaten people for speaking out against their, the abuses of a of the said billionaire to the community i mean jesus christ yeah yeah and elon musk as he has the uh mayor and uh local police force marching for him is an anti-establishment figure um it's uh it's a great world to be in so hopefully next uh wednesday next week's show we'll be able to talk um with um with becca and uh i'm, I'm really looking forward to that yeah, and uh, if you uh, if you subscribe at patreon.com slash left reckoning and get us to a thousand patrons, I'm not making any promises, but I will be in Austin. Uh, yeah. And, uh, uh, I don't know if there's any murals that need any touching up. <laughs> there's actually a couple. <laughs> and we could go, I mean, they're building their headquarters here, so we can go visit, go see if Musk wants to hang out. He's never here, by the way. Um, Is he in Cali? Have you seen the guy? Yeah, he's in Cali. <laughs> Uh, he flies from here to Brownsville to Cali. He's like, he, yeah, anyway, just, uh, I just hate listening to this guy talk about my home and I hate what he's doing to other people's homes, uh, as well. And, uh, Gross. let's work for a future where there is no more billionaires. Um, all right, folks, there might be something coming up afterwards, but, uh, no promises. If not, you'll be seeing bat hanging out on Twitch in just a couple minutes. Um, thank you all so much. Uh, don't, do not miss this uh, conversation that we'll be releasing on Sunday, breaking down the St. Louis Commune. Um, I'm really looking forward to it. It is a really, really uh, crucial and beautiful and fascinating part of our shared history here of resistance of fighting against rich assholes. That's an yeah. American tradition, baby. <laughs> Absolutely. See you, folks. All right, y'all. See you soon.